welcome into another episode of the Digital Dispatch Podcast. And when I launched this show back in November, I didn't think it would lead to the chance to get my own show on the Freightways platform. But here we are just a few months later, and I'm finally able to share an interview with Jeremy Thone of 3PL Systems conducted just a couple of days before Cyberly's launch, where you can definitely hear the nerves in my voice. Jeremy hosts a show for the company 3PL Systems, interviewing folks around the freight space, and it's one of those conversations where you just feel like you're having a beer with a buddy. He, along with myself, are the perfect examples of taking an industry that is traditionally thought of as quote unquote boring and turning it into a relationship and knowledge building experience with folks from all over the U.S. We get into some career history stuff, how I got my start with Freightways, the pressures of dealing with new challenges, content marketing, and so much more. So if you like this convo, I'm sure you'll love his show, 3PL Live. I've got it linked in the show notes, so be sure to subscribe and follow along his journey because he's doing some really, really great content hosting and and content marketing over on his show. But in the meantime, here is my chat with Jeremy. I mean, I have a fear of failure, right? I'm always, even when I first started podcasting, right? I was like, I have so overwhelmed by so many different things. Like, hey, how do I edit this? Do I use, which DAW do I use? Do I use Logic Pro for my music? What I, I just had so many thoughts that I, I, I tend to overthink things. And then instead of like just diving in and then slowly like building. So I was just wondering, did you have some of the same sort of things going on in your head. I know you've been doing this for a while, but. Oh my God. No, I'm still going through it because (laughs) I, I, I'm, I'm sure by the time that this is released, then it'll be like an official notification, but I just actually signed on to start doing a show um, with Freight Waves. So I'll be producing or creating a weekly show with Freight Waves. Congratulations. um, Cyberly. Thank you. (laughs) Um, But I'm going through it as we speak, like all this week, it's, it's going through uh, all of the things that I've learned in the past from like blogging on the floor, because I couldn't afford a desk and then moving into (laughs) doing, you know, like uh, uh, more than one, like live streaming on my own because the radio station I was working at wouldn't give me more airtime. So, you know, my stubborn behind, like, well, I want my own show, so I'm going to start creating my (laughs) own show. So I took that route. I didn't know what I was doing, but then going into more of these, I guess, professional style environments, there's almost like more pressure than Mm -hmm. there is on something that I'm creating myself. Um, (laughs) I still deal with it. I'm dealing with it this week. Yeah. I just, you know, sort of broke down like this big rig setup that I want to change on my desk. Okay. We need to relax. (laughs) Let's walk through that. Actually. How did the whole, I know I've seen you on freight waves over on, I think it was Kevin Hill show. Yeah. Coffee down. down. Yeah. Are you, is that, how how did it all go down? Like, how did you guys, how did you get involved with freight waves and how did the new, tell me about the new show and how all that's all going down. Sure. So I I got started with Freight Waves years ago when they had their first ever conference. It was called Transparency. It was in 2019. And I remember seeing some of their articles and I'm like, wow, this company is a little bit different from the mm-hmm. traditional freight coverage that I've seen. Mm-hmm. And it really reminded me because I, I was a former sports broadcaster. So it really reminded me of the early sports blogging days. And then when some of the big players started to come in, so like the SB nations of the world, when they started coming in and they started doing their in-depth coverage, but then also their breaking news coverage. And that's what Mm -hmm. it really reminded me about. And so I said, well, you know, I'm going to go to their conference. And if they're this forward thinking with their media, then I would, I would imagine that their conferences is is as well. So I went to the conference for the first time, also set up to be a startup. So they had a certain area where companies were, had their, you know, sort of a traditional trade show floor. And then those companies, 
companies were also speaking on stage mm-hmm. back then though, back in, I say this back then, like it was years <laughs> ago, but it was just a couple of years ago. <laughs> and, uh, but back then they had this row that was just for startups. So brand new companies. And I had mm. just launched digital dispatch a, a few months before. And so I was like, this is going to be the perfect opportunity where I can show off some of our capabilities. Mm-hmm. And so it was super affordable too. I think it was, you know, in trade show, terms sure. it was about two grand in order right. to to display exhibit. yeah exhibit to to have you know a, a place on their floor so i i got introduced to them that way because there was other people that were in my row that hated the place that we that or the placement of our row so mm. we were kind of in like the lunch breakfast area so we weren't <laughs> getting that traffic of like sure. you know in between <laughs> sessions and things like that we were really only getting the people foot traffic from whenever people are eating and mm. so i those right. people were upset. I was just happy to be here. Like, sure. Sort of like the Academy Awards. I'm just happy to be here. So they apparently complained a lot to where the Freight Waves team and and, and credit to, to Craig Fuller, who, who reached out personally to each one of us that was on that sort of startup row and said, I'm going to give you an extremely discounted rate for the next conference. Um, and you can actually demo on stage. Oh, wow. And so that was sort of the expansion of the relationship because I was like, oh, I'm absolutely doing this. And so I ended up demoing on stage, um, got in contact with more, the you know, sort of the Freight Waves crowd. I was really one of the first ones to start promoting the conference on like Twitter and like some of these other social media networks. So it was easy for me to kind of stand out. So I think sure. I kind of just got in early at the right time and just got notice of them. And so with the expansion of going into the demo environment, and then from there, I was able to start getting guest appearances on like, you know, what the truck. And then when Dooner left, put that coffee down in order to expand to role within what the truck that's when the guest co-hosting opportunity came up and uh, Kevin Hill asked me and I said absolutely because it sort of reminded me of what happened in my sports radio days where I didn't have any kind of broadcasting experience I never went to school for any of this and they had asked me to join a all-female football show on their radio platforming and so for the first six months that I did that show I did it for free Mm. and so with this time around I was like oh this kind of reminds me of the same situation like it's a lot of the same things that are repeating Mm -hmm. and so I did, you know, put that coffee down for about a month and a half as their guest co-host. And then, you know, a couple months later, here we are getting offered my own show and, you know, getting paid for it, which is a dream. So no, that's it's amazing. It's probably a lot of, is it a lot of pressure though? Just out of curiosity, you'd mentioned that it's kind of easier to do it on your own is how do you, how do you deal with that pressure? And like, what, what are you going through just out of curiosity? I think I kind of, I, I had a moment yesterday where I, I I have this wall in my office because I, the, this is a rather new office for me. I've been here for a little over a year now, but the mm-hmm. house that I previously lived at, I lived there for 12 years and that was the place that I was blogging on the floor. And then I was finally able to, I was working a waitressing job. So I, you know, saved up enough money to buy a, you know, a Craigslist couch and a Craigslist desk. Um, so just thinking about that perspective, and that journey has really helped as far as the pressure is concerned, because it is, it does feel like an enormous amount of pressure should be there. But I also know that I'm, I'm good at this and it's okay to say that I'm good at this. And it's okay to know that the first show is not going to be as polished and as perfect as I want it to be. I, I have a, a three month calendar right now <laughs> sitting on my desk of like three months worth of show planning. And I had to tell myself yesterday to relax. Oh, wow. And that's what helped by like looking at the photos and stop looking at these new desk rigs and just well, focus on this first show and let's get that one right first. And then let's move on to next week's show. Yeah, that makes sense. And what is the show about that they want you to, to do it on? 
So the the term cyberly is to do anything through the internet. And so I thought, well, what a, a you know, a perfect way to showcase sort of the, the the internet water cooler talk, the creator economy and and just different ways of how that intersects with freight and logistics. Oh, and so cool. that's the the sort of the ethos of the show. So a lot of the same things that I already talk about on the Digital Dispatch podcast is just going to be transformed into a more polished environment where, you know, I'll actually, you know, I'll have a producer again. I'll have, you know, people to bounce ideas off of, which is it's my only complaint about doing your own show is that sometimes you don't have that ability to be able to say, well, what do you think about this idea? Well, sure. what do you think about putting this image in here and, and expanding the, the show in different ways? Yeah, that, that makes total sense. Any idea for what your first show is going to be about? Yeah. So I actually have, um, I'm going to, I think that's going to be a a good opportunity to sort of introduce the show. I don't know that I need to go into my whole story again. I, maybe I will just because it's the first one, but I'm also bringing on uh, Shay Dixon, who is the CEO of Allegiant Logistics. I'm pretty sure that that's the the, the name of her company. Don't cool. quote me on that because I have to actually <laughs> read my show notes. I'm, my mind is just no, going. I get it. I don't want to butcher it. I butchered someone's <laughs> name yesterday or title yesterday. It was Chief Commercial Officer, and I put Chief operational officer and the post actually happened to be about like making mistakes and finding your tribe and the people oh, nice. that actually accept you <laughs> so i was glad that it actually was that because i was it was easier to you know be okay with my mess up <laughs> right and I, I think most people especially those who are creating content on the regular they get it like most of the time it's a one-person show and sometimes that can be very difficult to catch those things on your own because after a while like it, when you're editing things just start to blend together when you're reading things words just start to blend together like you'll look at a i, I remember vividly looking at the word what and saying to myself, I know that word is spelled wrong. I know <laughs> it's spelled wrong. And that's when you kind of have to take a step back and be like, okay, maybe we need to take a five minute break. No, that's that's totally true. But that's exciting though. I actually remember the first time I saw you, I think you were wearing like a NASA sweatshirt, which I thought was cool. And I know that Duna really likes space. And I was like, oh, like Bly seems like a cool girl. And yeah, you definitely have like, you're, you definitely stand out in this crowd for sure. Cause there's not a whole lot of people that are Blythe and there's not a whole lot of people that are, <laughs> which, which is interesting. Cause like, I, I don't know, it just seems like it's a, mostly dudes if you think about it, right? Oh, it's, yeah. not, it's not like a, a whole lot of women and you don't look like your typical freight lady either not that there's a typical freight look but you know what i mean it doesn't so yeah. i think that's it's unique to your situation which i think is cool well, I mean, credit to Dooner because he really was the first person. I, I always thought coming from like a sports and entertainment background that I would have to keep those two things separate, keep the freight and logistics talk separate from, you know, the the things that are are sort of my other types of personalities blending together. And so he would, when he started bringing in some of the things that he's passionate about, it almost gave me permission to be like, oh, wow, I, you know, I don't have to be so stuffy and formal. I can bring new things into the mix. It might not always land well with the business audience, such as like posting a meme to LinkedIn that doesn't necessarily work with that sure. crowd, but it's, it's okay to embrace those different aspects of your personality. I will say that Duner really inspired me as well, just because I think that I'm kind of an introverted person and I'm more of a creative person. And I feel like a lot of the times, like, I'm like, I, I don't feel like people are going to understand like half the stuff that I'm thinking in my mind and it's going to fall flat. Right. But I think that like just seeing how much he just goes for it, Mm -hmm. It's just so inspiring because you're just like, wow, like I'd never thought that like that would happen in freight. Right. And right. to see someone actually pull that off, you're like, wow, if I could even get like to like 10% of that, like I'd be stoked. Yeah. And I think that that's what all companies are sort of go trying to go after, like finding that lightning in a bottle host that's, 
you know, that, that knows the industry enough, but can still remain super curious about how everything is evolving and, and how it's transitioning into this brand new, you know, sort of tech dominated space and how the, the intersections of like tech people coming in with like traditional blue collar, like truck drivers and those parallels. And he does a really great job of balancing it all. So I, I really, you know, give a lot of credit to him for sort of I guess uh, not necessarily giving me permission, but giving me the example that I can use, you know, th- those different parts of my personality, like, a, you know, going to, you know, the Kennedy Space Center and then mm-hmm. hearing about space waves. And it's like, oh, this is a perfect time to use my sweatshirt. <laughs> and to use yeah, that my was coffee a cool mug. sweatshirt. Where'd you get that? <laughs> From the, the Kennedy Space Center. Space- that was one okay. of um, the, the first trips that I took over last summer. Like one of the first things, I mean, Florida's kind of, you know, everybody knows we're kind of crazy down here, but it was one of the first trips trips that I took when things started opening back up is that there was the the NASA Perseverance launch and we had never been to one before and we lived so close to it. It literally like it's two hours away. And so we made just like a weekend of it, like went down, watched the launch. It was a little sketchy on where you could you know, sort of watch the launch because everything's still kind of closed down per se. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, just like the hotels going out to eat for the first time and like sitting outside was Ooh. it was a whole weekend of like, wow, this is this stuff that, you know, you kind of miss. And how crazy is it that, you know, that name persevere or perseverance is is sort of tied in with COVID and, and being able to, you know, watch space waves and hear, you know, NASA's uh, astronauts and, and, you know, just scientists be able to talk about it and then seeing it land on Mars. It was just sort of like a, a a big awakening, I think. Yeah, that makes total sense. I, I, I like that. There's actually a song I like by this artist named Tycho called Awake. And he, he actually talks about like how he was a graphic artist at one point and then became a musician. And the song is called Awake. And it has like this, (laughs) like that moment of you know, awakeness or where you kind of figure out that, oh yeah, this is what I'm going to do. And this makes sense. Right. Which which kind of makes sense with that perseverance thing as well. So you got that gear there, the, the sweatshirt? Or- yeah. Apparently we were trying to find like, you know, all like the tourist shops maybe that are around the Kennedy Space Center, like trying to find something with like an astronaut on it. And the closest thing we could find was like at the Ron John surf shop with like hmm. a, somebody, a surfer in an astronaut costume surfing. <laughs> that was the closest thing we could find. And then we ended up asking somebody at the hotel we were staying at and they said no you you have to actually go into the kennedy space center in order to get a lot of that merch because the nasa officials and nasa people are super strict about it and so what it, it by chance we were in the parking lot and my boyfriend had asked one of the guys that were in the parking lot hey did, he saw you had a nasa bag said hey where did you get that and he's like oh we just got back from the kennedy space center here's our ticket stubs and sorry, NASA, um, but we use those ticket stubs to just, you know, go right back into, they had already used them and left for the day. So we use their ticket stubs in order to walk around and um, check out a lot of the exhibits. Most of them were all closed, um, but we got to go in and spend some money. So I feel like NASA ultimately wouldn't care that we kind of snuck into the, the retail amazing. store because we spend a lot of money in there. Where is that anyways in Florida? It's um it's called the Space Coast. And so it's uh, Cape Canaveral, Florida. Uh, which is probably, if you're familiar with like where Orlando is, it's directly east. Um, And they have beautiful beaches over there too, which a a lot of that beach area, I think is a state park. Um, And I think they did it on purpose in order to just kind of make that area around the the launch center just uh, less populated for whenever Mm -hmm. they do have their launches. Um, So the beaches are just 
gorgeous. And so we spent probably, you know, a, a full day there just exploring like the trails and um, the beaches that they have to offer and got to see where the launch pad is from the beach. So next time we do go, uh, we'll, we'll definitely go to the beach to try to watch it because there was, there was, you know, a little bit of drama of, of where we could initially watch the launch. Mm. Um, there was like bleachers set up and they wouldn't let us sit on the bleachers because covid and i'm like what word i don't get it we couldn't like stand in the grass like off to the side of the road um there's a lot of rules there that aren't Mm. typically there so i had gotten a lot of advice from other people that had gone before uh but it just didn't work out so we had to park in like this random businesses parking lot that actually was letting people park there in order to watch the launch and the launch only lasted you know for maybe like a few minutes and it was rad to see but it was sort of a a cluster F word in order to find <laughs> where we could actually watch it. Yeah. I was real. When I was living in LA, uh, I'm a long story. I'll, I'll give you the quick cliff notes version of my thing, but I was living in Los Angeles in Culver city for quite some time. And then I moved up to Portland, got married, never thought I would get married. And I haven't really announced this to anyone, but I'm actually unfortunately getting divorced, which oh, sucks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, but, uh, it just a long story, but basically just too many moving parts, like two ex-husbands, three kids. I, I really tried, but it just didn't work out. But yeah. now I'm moving to Austin. Oh, wow. So I'm actually in Bend, Oregon right now, which is three hours south of Portland and kind of staying out here for a month to snowboard because there's a Mount Bachelors right here. So there's all these like really cool breweries and just like cool food trucks and whatnot. So I'm hanging here for like a month and then my mom's going to fly out here and we're going to drive cross country to oh, Austin. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So I don't know. I'm new life, I guess, for a bit, but like anything changes hard, but I'm just glad that I have my, my dog Dolomite. So yes. he's been really nice. like nurturing me <laughs> and keeping nice me. Nice name, by the way. <laughs> oh, thank you. It's, have you seen that, that, uh, Netflix show with Eddie Murphy? It's called, there's like an old school, like seventies movie called Dolomite. And it's, it's, uh, based upon that old school movie from like the I 70s. thought it was like just a mineral. I'm gonna have to look, look that it up. Is, I, it thought, is I thought it's, it was a mineral. It's a white, it's a white mineral from Italy as well. It's like Dolomite okay. rock. Yeah. So that, there's that as well. <laughs> okay, gotcha. Because I was like, wait a minute, I know that phrase, and I know it applies to a few different things. <laughs> yeah, and he's white too, and the mineral's white, so it's funny that it it all. <laughs> but do you have dogs or anything like that? Or no, no pets. Thought about it, but I think um, I have uh, about seventy plants, though. So oh, wow. I probably supplement not no pets or children with the plants. Oh, that's that, cool. Yeah. That I have all throughout the house. I literally counted the other day, and that's like it was. Uh, I think it was sixty-eight. Wow. Different species of plants. What that's kind of not plants even like. Talking? Oh my gosh! So. <laughs> when I lived out at the beach, when I lived closer to the beach, I had certain plants that were kept outside and, but they were also kept out in like the brutal hot, like Florida summer where it's like 110 degree heat index, uh, humidity, Mm -hmm. the works. So I didn't really have like much of a pest problem with those plants out there, but moving to this new place, we don't have a yard. So we're on a second store. We're in like a historic home. Mm. And so the, the, we have a second story porch, which is absolutely gorgeous. So I have all of most of my plants all out there, but the pests have just gotten to them and it's like a whole new beast of just trying to navigate those different waters so i've like 
you know, I've purchased lace wigs. I've purchased like 5,000 ladybugs and released them in order to take care of these pests. Nothing (laughs) has worked. So (laughs) the majority of the plants that I have now um, are not really flower based, um, but I do have like a lot of herbs. um, So I have like sage and um, oregano and basil, um, growing onions, garlic. Um, That was like a a big like COVID, I guess, sort of hobby that I took up. Um, I've always had plants, but it switched from like having flowers in order to having just like more like succulents and greenery. And then the herbs have done really well on the porch. Oh yeah. The herbs are cool too. Cause you can cook with them and kind of, yeah. yeah, it's kind of a neat experience to be able to eat something that you've made as part of the ingredients. Right. It's so it's, it's very fulfilling. And so this year I've sort of expanded on that. I, I don't necessarily tell my boyfriend when I'm buying new plants, I, they just sort of just show up because <laughs> then he's like, Oh, well, I guess. And I told him the number the other day of how many plants and I probably shouldn't have told him. that. <laughs> it's funny. Yeah. I, I actually got really into plants when I was living in Portland. I had I spent three, this thing that sounds crazy, but I spent three days digging out this black bamboo that was like 20 feet tall. And I, I, it was so hard to get out. I ended up having to rent a jackhammer to get the stuff out and it would get stuck like in, in the soil when I was actually pulling it out. And it was an awful experience, but I, I got like kind of obsessed with bamboo for a bit and had all this cool bamboo. And when I was living in LA, I really liked the succulents and cactus Mm -hmm. and all that kind of stuff as well. But those things don't do very well in the Pacific Northwest. And I'm sure where you're at, you, you got all the tropical stuff, right? I, yeah. I mean, you you were just talking about going snowboarding and here <laughs> it's, I think it's going to be 82 degrees by the end of the week. So wow. it's it, beach weather is already back. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I, I'm, I'm sure maybe some of your audience has heard like the stories going on, like South Florida, like Miami beach being shut down because there's too many spring breakers and summer's here already. <laughs> yeah. How often do you go to the beach? Just out of curiosity, living in Florida, is um, it all the like, time? Yes. <laughs> That's cool. Uh, I, I mean, I used to live four minutes from the beach. Now I live 28 minutes. Oh, wow. um, but I, I I feel like that is the place where I always get sort of reconnected with myself because I'll, I'll take a journal and I'll take a notebook and a pen and that's really all I need. And so I'll take that out there and I'll spend a few hours out there. I'm also really into like shell hunting. So I'll go through and we have some really good beaches for that as well. Uh, so I'll, I'll do that uh, at least once a week. I used to do it more when I lived four minutes away, but mm. um, now that it's starting to get warmer again, I'll go at least once a week. Yeah, that's awesome. It, it sounds like it's part of your mental health, like yes. a, a way of just, you know, just kind of decompressing and kind of relaxing. Do you do anything else like yoga or anything like that for, for oh, mental yeah. health? Yeah, definitely. Um, because I, I, especially with like moving and then like three weeks later, like I was moving away from a place that I had lived for so long. And then like three weeks after I moved into a new place, COVID hits and mm. we were moving to a sort of like a, a walkable neighborhood where it's just, this is a very historic neighborhood. Um, but they also have, a, you know, they have their main street and the main mm-hmm. street has like all of these great, like local businesses, restaurants, breweries, all that good stuff. And so not being able to have the outlet of the beach because the beaches were shut down, which I, I still don't understand why, because mm. nature gives people mental health breaks mm-hmm. when that was shut down. And then also all of the restaurants, it was kind of like how I, I ended up getting close to 70 plants on my porch. <laughs> <laughs> That's how, as one does. <laughs> I think plants are very therapeutic though. Cause I feel like every time I've had plants, house plants as well, you just feel so much better having plants in the house because they. I, there's something about it. It almost feels like a pet or, or yeah. something. It's like very a very soothing. quiet pet. <laughs> it doesn't talk or bark. Right. 
And you really only have to mess with it. Like you have to water it every few days and then, you know, just check on them. So that's been, you know, part of my like daily routine is I'll go outside. I'll check on everybody. Everybody's doing all right. All right. <laughs> you all do <laughs> I never knew how much to water them either. I was always like kind of checking the moisture with like my finger, but like I always felt like, I don't know. I, I never really knew exactly like, you know, how to do it. Probably. Oh, I bought a water meter off Amazon. Things that TikTok made me buy, but there's <laughs> this like $15 water meter that you can just plug into the soil of the plants and it'll tell you if it's moist or not. But now I just sort of go by the rule of thumb because I have killed plants by mm. overwatering them. Uh, so now I've just learned like once they just get droopy, like water them a little bit and then that's that's probably fine. And then uh, going back to your show too with the producing, how does that work with the producer? Like what is, I, I'm kind of unfamiliar what a producer does because I mean, everything kind of just falls on me. So I'm just curious. What is that? What does <laughs> oh, it's that actually like? pretty nice. It's like having a, uh, it's like having a co-host that is an, as involved in the research and the show setup and flow, but they don't talk as much. Mm. Um, I, I mean, I haven't had the opportunity to work with a producer yet on this new show, but in, like in past freight wave shows, you'll hear like in the countdown, um, okay, we have five minutes left, which we don't typically have to worry about with like podcasts and things like that. But with mm -hmm. live TV, you have to be able to hit your marks, either your breaks and hit your marks. If you have a hard out, you better be wrapping that show up within 30 seconds left. So a producer will help with that. Um, and then they'll also help say, you know, for a show, if I want to include some B-roll or some images and um, for a particular show, then I will send them that information and they'll make sure that it goes up on the screen uh, it, at the proper time. Uh, they'll also help out with like fact checking, um, maybe like pulling like audio quotes and things like that. So you can play throughout the broadcast. So it a producer cool. can, can honestly make a huge difference in the show. So I'm, I'm looking forward to developing that relationship. It's almost like a, if you watch Joe Rogan, like what Jamie does for, mm. for Joe Rogan, like helps him fact check in the middle of conversations, um, pulls up things on the internet if he's referencing them so then that way the audience and and the person he's talking to can have a, a more of a feel of what he's talking about no i think that that's super helpful because like a lot of the times you can't really do like five things at once or like be like no. chatting like on your computer <laughs> while you're talking and then like it's just too distracting you know right <laughs> How often are you guys planning on doing the shows? Is it like once a week or what's like that? Once a week. Out? So Thursdays from 2 to 3 p.m. So I'm still trying to like play around with how it's going to look for the Digital Dispatch podcast. So my initial thinking, and I'm sure this is going to evolve because my, my content usually always evolves. Sure. Um, so I'm I'm thinking of doing, you know, that show first and then going directly into like sort of a live Q&A after the show is over or just taking the questions that I see in the comments or something like that and then answering them, uh, maybe giving myself like an hour break in between each show before I, you know, go live or even just do a recording. Not necessarily sure on how often I want to go live on, on different social media platforms yet. I know mm -hmm. there's a benefit to it, but I just don't know that I, I have the bandwidth sure. to want to do it. I know that my, I'm truly passionate about like helping people and answering questions. And especially when it comes to like, you know, marketing websites and tech and, you know, content creation and things like that. I love answering those types, types of questions. Mm -hmm. I'm just, I'm, I, I got to figure out how that fits into the the new format and my new distribution plan, which is going to change because a, a lot of the same stuff that I would be covering on the Digital Dispatch podcast is now moving to a, 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 a TV format. Um, so there's a lot of synergies there, but there's also some changes I got to make on my end of things. 
Yeah, that makes sense. So you got like two things, two projects basically that you you're juggling the freight waves project and then digital dispatch. And theoretically, they're slightly they're going to be a little bit different. Or yeah, because the, with digital dispatch, I can go much more in depth. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so that's where I kind of see those conversations going, and I can see it more in like a Q and A environment, um, building a you know sort of a community of marketers, a, a community of of creators sure. within that space. So we can kind of like not feel like we're all like on an island by ourselves, and you know we can bounce ideas off of each other, and you know hey, this is working for me here, maybe it'll work for you too. Um, so sharing those those types of ideas and building that you know just trying to be the voice of the, the 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 freight creator economy um oh. th- that's the ultimate goal for me that's actually really cool i really like that a lot that makes a whole lot of sense because i could definitely use something like that or i always i'm a, kind of a i always watch youtube channels like you know all these people that are youtubers yep. and everything you know it's just stupid stuff from like welding to cryptocurrency to pretty much everything and i feel like that's how i learn you know i learn from just watching other people and just right. kind of just watching the videos five million times because i'm an ocd <laughs> No, I'm I'm the same. I I have certain creators that I will not miss a show, and some of them are in entertainment. Some of them are in like podcasting, and and others are all on YouTube. Um, so it it's definitely an inspiration to take cues from all walks of life, and then figure out how they fit into uh, your own show plan. Yeah, it makes sense. And then what about? Uh... I know you've probably gone live before in the past. I've never gone live, but do you go live on OBS and then do you use like LinkedIn or how do you go about that? So when I've gone live in the past, I tried out OP- OBS, but it just wasn't a good fit for me. There was a lot of uh, a learning curve there. So mm-hmm. tools like OBS or even like Audacity, the, the open source software, which I'm a big fan of from just like a principle standpoint, mm-hmm. it just wasn't a good fit for me. The learning curve was too steep. So when I used to go live, especially with um, the sports radio show that we did, because we were the first show in the country in order to go live in, in that environment. And I used a tool called Switcher Studios and it I've was, used that before. and I, I loved yeah, it. I liked it too, and yeah. iOS, it w- right? Yeah. So it was yeah. iOS and you basically, you have an iPad or an iPhone, whichever, mm-hmm. um, but you could set up different camera angles. So I had one, one iPhone on me. I had another iPhone on the other girls. And then I had the command center using the iPad in order mm-hmm. to switch between, you know, different like lower thirds, um, sure. showing images of the people that we were having, you know, as an interview guest on the show, um, things like that, that made the live experience better. Cause I learned very quickly of like certain, certain camera angles that you should have. And uh, I never went live on LinkedIn, but I know with Facebook in particular, we had one camera angle that was just, and this is sort of a learning experiment for me, but I, it was just almost over top, like looking down at all the hosts. Mm. And it did dreadful to the point where if you have less than five people, I think it's like less than five people watching a Facebook live, Facebook will just shut your live off. Like there's no recourse. You're like, you're not even worthy. <laughs> right? They'll just shut you down. And so that I sucks. figured that out the hard way. Um, so that's when I started going live on uh, YouTube instead. And so I would go live on YouTube because then that would just automatically load right into the channel. Didn't have to really worry about doing much editing and things like that. Um, so that's how I did it back in the day. Now, today, I don't know that I want to go live. I, yeah, it I, seems I, like a lot of stress. I don't know. I, I'm just not super 
keen on just having to dodging, I don't know, shape-shifting. Into- and it's, but it's also like from a, a viewership perspective, I, I want to make sure that, you know, if you are going to take time out of your day in order to digest my content, I don't want it to be like, hey, so-and-so, welcome. Hey, so-and-so, nice of you to join. I don't care about that from a, a listener perspective or a sure. viewer perspective. So I don't want to put my audience through that. I want to make something that I would genuinely want to watch or listen to. Um, and even if it's only 20 minutes long instead of 30 minutes long, because 10 minutes of it is just saying hi to new people joining, I just don't necessarily care about that. So I don't I don't want to put that kind of pressure on an audience member to, in order to to digest the meat of what I'm talking about to get through all of that other stuff. So I, I I don't know that I'll I'll be going live very often on my own. Like I'll participate in other platforms that you know if they want me on as a guest or whatnot. I, I, you know that that's your platform. You know I'll I'll take part in it. But I think just from a viewership perspective, it's just so much more bang for your buck when you just cut out the BS and just give people value. What is like the the, psycho- the psychology of going live versus recorded, it seems just to be a lot more stressful to go live than to actually just do something like a show like this and record it and then publish it. So like, how do you mentally prepare for that? I know that you have the broadcast background, but people that are, you know, that haven't walked in your shoes, how would you suggest that they get there? I would say if you're going to go live, so so one of the more successful ones that I do watch that they technically go live on Zoom. So they have a recurring schedule. And, and that's one of the better things, better aspects about Zoom is that you can set up a regular show. So that what this gentleman does is he of Refine Labs, he is, it's a great show. So every Tuesday night, 7.30 p.m., they go live on Zoom. Mm-hmm. And he has a few different topics that he dives into. And then he takes questions either submitted through email or questions from the the viewers and attendants. And so he'll dive off, you know, he'll he'll dive into a few of the different topics that he has planned initially and then he'll go into the Q&A. And so that's when he'll do a lot of like, "Oh, hey, nice to see you here again." Those types of things. And I think that that is much more valuable to the audience both watching live and watching on the replay because it's very quick. It's not the the most it, the, the thing that you should be kicking off your show with is the most important thing that you want your audience to know because you only have such a short amount of time to gather their attention and to mm-hmm. keep their attention. So sure. they have to know that it's going to be worth it. So when people start off shows with saying hi to people that don't necessarily matter, yeah, it's boring. Yeah. It's a waste of time. No one cares. And, <laughs> and, you know, Facebook will shut you down. So <laughs> it's one of those things where it's giving your audience the most value and as quick as you can should always be the move. No matter if you're going live or if you're, you know, putting a video up on YouTube, like YouTube, the average, you have like three seconds in order to grab somebody's attention. And so for like some of these channels that have like a fancy intro and things like that, that's actually the opposite of what you should be doing because you're competing with so many different creators and professional companies and just, you know, meme videos and and things like that. You're competing with all of those people. So yes, your fancy intro, it looks nice, but it's, is it going to gather the attention of your audience right off the bat? And if it doesn't, YouTube is going to stop recommending your videos to that, that person and then other people in the future. So as long as you can capture attention immediately, I think that that's the move with going live. If you're not going to do that, I would say you're probably better off 
with just recording something and then uploading it as it's live and then interacting in the chat as people join, because I know that there are ways to do that. Sure. You had a really great episode, actually. I think it was like last week about creating a podcast, I believe. Hmm. And I'm curious, what advice do you have for people that are like trying to create a podcast, like other other people that are budding content creators, maybe in the freight industry that that maybe are considering doing something like they don't, I, I, we kind of talked about that a second ago, but I don't really think you need a fancy video. You don't need anything crazy. Like you just kind of develop something and go for it, right? Like what, what advice do you have for them? So for, for those kind of, if you're even thinking about starting up a, a new podcast or maybe a video-based podcast, I would say just start with your cell phone. That's that's what I used for years and what I would typically use until I bought like a fancy like webcam. So I started mm-hmm. off with just using my cell phone and a $20 microphone that I got off Amazon and it plugs right into your phone. So you get the better audio, you get the great video that cell phones can now provide. And then you have to think about the content that you're actually going to talk about? Is it is it going to be one topic? That seems to be where a lot of creators are going, where they're, it's less of the like two to three hour programming and more or less one singular, singular topic that you're going to dive into. And either you're going to dive into it or you're going to have a subject matter expert come in and dive into it. Now, I think for a lot of your audience, they're probably going to be creating this content maybe for a company. And so if you're going to do that, then I would start to think about the resources that you already have within your company. Who are the subject matter experts? What kind of content are you going to be talking about? Pick three or four categories that you really want to hammer home because you can always expand in the future. I think the dangers with a lot of people when they first start is they think they have to be everywhere. They have to be everything to everyone. And that's when it gets a little sticky. So if I were to start a new show, I would pick three or four things that I'm going to cover and I'm going to cover those really, really well. And I'm going to use the resources within my own company in order to really hammer home of, of the ultimate goal, which is to get brand awareness and to, to help people. And the addition to that, or, or I guess the, the dessert to that is that eventually the audience that is listening will later on down the line, either tell somebody about your show, tell somebody about your company, or eventually become a customer. It's not going to be something that you're going to see a ton of success with overnight, but if you give it a year and you do an episode a week, I guarantee you will see some results from it. Yeah, it is interesting because I feel like there's a lot of people on LinkedIn as well that you might be actually engaging with your content, but you don't really know about it because I feel like LinkedIn, it's not, I would say that the people on there aren't super generous. Like when it comes to like, you know, hey, like just like liking a photo or whatever, who gives a mm-hmm. shit, right? But like, it just seems like it's it's not like something that like people are, are generous about. So I feel like people probably are a little intimidated because, you know, it's just like kind of a stuffy environment. Yeah. And I I think that if you try to sort of break the mold a little bit, you have to do it a little bit more carefully on LinkedIn. Um, I mentioned earlier about like, I, you know, just, I remember doing a post and attaching a meme to it and it bombed (laughs) compared to like some of the advice videos that I put out there that, that they, you know, they don't go viral or anything, but they do pretty well. And I look at, you know, who is liking them and who is engaging with them or do they have the right you know, sort of job titles of, you know, the target market that I'm going after. Is it people within the freight space? Is it people outside of the freight space? I think it's fair to say that a lot of the content that I cover isn't exclusive to freight, but that's the audience that I'm trying to speak to right now. Um, That may change in the future, but it just sort of goes to the, the back to the advice of, you know, start small, start in your niche, and you can always expand later on into more, you know, general topics. But if you hammer home and, and you're known for 
for one or two, maybe three or four really good categories, really good things that people care about, then I, I think that that speaks volumes about the, the, the type of creativeness that you can get as you start to add more categories into your bucket. That makes total sense. What kind of like topics would you give me a couple of examples if you can of topics? Like, uh, I would say for, for me personally, like what I, I plan on covering. Just, yeah, anything. Yeah. So for example, I, I plan on covering the creator economy in the logistics space. So the people that are actively out there creating content, companies like 3PL Systems that are investing into hiring a host that's going to be creating their content sure. in-house. Um, so focusing on that. And then later on down the line, say two years from now, it could be an opportunity that I expand more into you know B2B, just the mm-hmm. overall B2B world instead of just in freight and logistics. And I say that is sort of like a, a moniker because I know that I, I use freight and logistics as a quote unquote niche, even though it's, you know, an incredibly expensive and just multifaceted and uh, it, just industry in general. And if I were to step outside of that box, I feel like I would be spreading myself too thin. So handling one industry really well at first, then in the future, I could be able to explore different areas because I'm naturally curious. I'm, I'm curious about a lot of different things. Um, so I think that there might become a day where I just feel create from a creative perspective, I just don't want to talk about this anymore. <laughs> and maybe I want to move into something else and talk about something else and try my hand there. Um, I kind of got that way with the Jaguars, um, it, covering that team for the better part of the last decade. And I just felt like I got to a place where it was the same old song and dance every single year. And outside of 2017, where we had an insanely successful season, it was just a, a drag. And it was one of those things where I just felt like I needed to change it up. So after 10 years of covering that team, I was like, it's, it's time to, to move on to something that I can bring a, a, a better personality into. And I saw that in freight, but I was still also a little scared to bring my full personality into it because I didn't know that it would work. Mm-hmm. Um, so now dabbling in there and experimenting with different things, I can see, okay, well, this this might work. This one, probably not so much, but then this other area that might, that might work too. So um, it's a lot of different things that I think that I could play around with, especially like with these new platforms or newer platforms, like a TikTok, for example, I think we talked to, uh, you know, a lot about that previously where I'm just so I'd learned something new multiple times per day, every time I check that app mm-hmm. and I'm not ex- having that experience on any other social media platform. Are so that makes too? I was back in the day and when Instagram added the stories feature and you could be able to tag different companies and things like that, I I didn't want to spread myself too thin. Mm -hmm. So then I just got rid of Snap and just went to Instagram stories. That was probably a bad decision. I probably should have stayed with Snap considering that their their platform continues to grow. They actually made money in the fourth quarter of of 2020, which is great to see. And their follower group, the, the amount of people who actually post to their platform increased Increases. Meanwhile, platforms like uh, Facebook and Instagram, we don't know because they haven't released the, that follower growth number in years. And if they haven't released those numbers in years, then you can probably imagine that uh, they're they're not exper- experiencing the same amount of growth um, as they once did. I like those uh, so snap, snap filters. 
Those are cool. Yeah, the, yeah. And, and I really love their maps feature too, where you can just go anywhere in the world and just see the the snaps that are uh, that are published live. So, for example, like um, when Puerto Rico was getting hit by Hurricane Maria, I believe it was, you could actually go into the Snapchat mats or maps and go in and watch live footage from wow. people posting like their hurricane experiences. So those That's kind really of cool. things are really like that firsthand user knowledge is, is, is really just something that's fascinating to me. And, and so I, I love that about snap, but it's just one of those platforms that I can't add more to my plate mm-hmm. at LinkedIn, YouTube, and TikTok are, are where I should be focusing the majority of my time. And I say should be because Twitter is still in the back of my, you know, my love hate relationship with that platform still exists. <laughs> Twitter. Sorry. Do you, I, I can't remember if you, I think you, you, I know you use Twitter personally, but for business, do you use it as well? Well, I used to, yes. So, and I say used to, I still have a business account. And so I have a digital dispatch or a digi dispatch account that's just for news. And so for that, I just don't, I don't see much growth with it because I feel like people on Twitter, they want to know that the person behind the brand. Um, And I experienced this years ago where it was like 10 years ago, my first company that I ever launched, it was a sports and entertainment site. And I used to tweet personally from that brand account. And I I grew it up to a few thousand followers and, you know, nothing to, you know, shake a stick at, but it was one of those, it it was, it was decent. Uh, And I was like, well, I'm probably at the time where I should, you know, keep this as a news-based account. So people that are coming to this brand for sports and entertainment news, maybe that's all they want to see. They probably don't want to see me complaining about, you know, the Jaguars every Sunday in the fall. So instead I'll create a personal account to do the same. Um, so I, I switched to a, I, I added a personal account on Twitter and that one, the, the, the business account stopped growing and the personal account grew. Hmm. So now I'm like around 5,000 followers. Oh, wow. That's a lot. That Twitter <laughs> account. But it's mostly because it's the Jaguars <laughs> and complaining about them. So I think, you know, like minds, they, you know, sort of gravitate towards each other on, on Twitter where, you know, it's been 10 years of misery. And coincidentally, you know, Twitter's been around for about 10 years too. So everybody that's been suffering, you know, this long standing suffering with this team. Um, we sort of gravitate towards each other, but it, it's nice now leaving sports radio and, you know, getting embraced by a different community. And that's the freight and logistics community, um, which is growing on Twitter. Not as, I mean, it, it's never going to be, you know, what probably what sports and entertainment is just because those are so much more mainstream, but mm-hmm. If certain programming keeps, you know, keeps doing their thing, like, uh, you know, what the truck, for example, that that is bringing freight coverage into the mainstream. So there could be future opportunities where, you know, that community will grow on Twitter. Um, I just don't see a lot of companies investing that kind of time into that platform. So I don't know that it'll it'll ever get there. Um, and I just don't see you know, social media networks as a whole, like with the big three with, you know, Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, I don't see them lasting for, you know, the next five to 10 years. I mean, that's tough to even say. And I know that's sort of like a, a, a BS example, but I just, mm-hmm. I, I see what happened in 2020 and sort of the distrust or, you know, the, the lack of trust, I should say, that exists within these platforms. And big tech is a huge problem. And it, when you have unelected officials being able to decide what gets to be said in it's a censored. public... Yeah that, yeah, that that I think a lot of people have a big problem with that. And 
it just speaks to sort of like the existing ecosystem within Twitter where less than 10% of the US population is on Twitter. And then of that, 2% of Twitter users create more than 90% of all tweets. So it's a very small fraction of people that are creating, you know, sort of this thought process of what goes on on a platform that is essentially the way that most people digest news. And so it's it's a little scary at some points, but then at the other, on the flip side, that it is really encouraging to see these other platforms getting started, like a Clubhouse, like a TikTok. Um, those, I mean, privacy and security concerns, that, that's a whole other <laughs> topic of conversation. Sure. Uh, but I, I think it is encouraging that those platforms can even see the growth that they have with these other tech tech platforms just dominating what we experience as a whole, as a culture. And so I I think in the future, we're going to see a lot more platforms start to segment off and be sort of niche based versus, you know, a few different players that, that dominate a a lot of the, the discourse and a lot of the discussion that we see nowadays. Well, it's interesting too, because even like, I remember everyone started going to that parlor site for a bit there and then they got shut down by AWS. And Mm -hmm. it just seems like there's a lot of censorship going on by big tech. But I'd imagine too, that like blockchain might kind of disrupt a lot of that as well, because it seems like with like that decentralized like networks that more things and not be able to, they'll be able to get away with more, I feel like. So I think that we're going to see a lot more of that probably in the next five, 10 years. That's what I would hope. And I know that there's there's people currently trying to do that. I think they're calling it like Web 3.0, where because mm-hmm. the, the original creators of the web never meant for a few different companies to dominate the 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 this the speaking ecosystem. They they created it as an open source mechanism so that you can connect with people who are like-minded. Now that these few companies control the flow of speech. That's sort of the antithesis of what the internet was started to begin with was to share knowledge. And now where, you know, knowledge is power and you have a few different companies making this, that decision on what constitutes as something that you should know and something that you shouldn't know. In reality, they shouldn't be making those decisions at all. I do think that they're, you know, they are a private company and they do have the right to make a, you know, business decisions that are, that are best for their platform. There's a lot of manipulation that goes along with that. And I think that you know, if, if anybody's interested and they, they want to hear more of it, there's a great PBS documentary that covers inside of Facebook. And, and they talk about how the, you know, even Trump's team, whenever he first was, was trying to get elected and whenever he first announced that he was running for president and how Trump's team basically called up Facebook and said, I want to advertise on all of your, all of your platforms. Tell me how to do it and do it the best. And Facebook was like, well, we can't really tell you from an organizational standpoint how to do that. But they ended up sending a personal rep from Facebook ad team to the Trump administration. And he started working for the Trump administration, creating ads for his uh, political aspirations. And so from that standpoint, you have a hand in uh, getting someone elected, but then not also getting them elected, but profiting from that election and then turning around four years later and saying, we're going to ban him from our platform. It's like, so once you made your money off of him, now you're just going to throw him off to the side and he doesn't matter anymore. Yeah, so who's going to be the next person you pick? Little things like that. Plus the the bot problem is such a, it's not talked about enough. What is it? Um, I don't know about the bot problem. 
So it's estimated that more than 40% of all internet traffic is bot related now. Um, A lot of that traffic is also related to advertising. So different advertising that you're creating and different clicks that you get on your advertising aren't coming from legitimate sources. And so that's a big problem in in tech as well. We're also seeing situations where I think uh, the the documentary from from PBS Frontline also touched on like the Arab Spring movement that happened over in the Middle East. Facebook was responsible responsible for that, for, for spreading that messaging and getting that messaging out there. Also for a lot of the uh, Russian, I guess, disinformation campaigns that mm-hmm. have, have come through. That's, these are, are, are real people creating fake accounts, and then they use that to manipulate audiences in other countries. So Facebook as a whole, their, their company and you know people working within the utilizing the platform in order to gain specific things and other countries have done this for so long that they, you know, they, they created an uprising over in the Philippines. They created an uprising for the Arab spring. And then now when this stuff starts happening in the U S people are, you know, going, what's going on, what's going on when it's been done and across the globe for years. And so it's really troubling that they have seen these things happen, have done nothing to stop it, and then allow it to happen in our own country to their own benefit. And it's just, it's one really wild example from that documentary. And I'll, I'll, that's probably going to be the last time I mention it, I promise. No, I don't. It um, sounds fascinating. I want to watch it. <laughs> it was it was crazy because they, so the these two different Russian camps, or maybe the same camp, they created two different groups and they created a group for Black Lives Matter. And then they created a, a group for Blue Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. And these are groups that are created in like the Ukraine. And so these Weird. people are, you know, posting memes and posting fake news and posting them to these groups. And then what they would do is they would take these two different groups and they would start to set up meetings in real life meetings where they would have a Black Lives Matter meetup happen at one restaurant. And then across the street, they would have a Blue Lives Matter mm. uh, meetup happen. And so they were creating these, uh, these seeds of dissent online. And then they were making them meet up in person in order to to make them fight in real life. That's and terrible. that is what is so <laughs> scary to me and the power that a lot of these platforms have. And I sort of walk a fine line when it comes to like regulation, especially when it comes to to these big platforms. But big tech is the only industry that isn't regulated in some way or another by the U.S. government. And, you know, you, you could say that there, there's pros and cons that come with that. But it's it's a really scary thing when you have these seeds of dissent being sown all throughout the globe. And then when it starts happening in the U.S. and it directly affects different elections and different people that are placed in power, you really have to ask yourself, OK, well, who's really running this country? And they're not elected officials. It's media companies. It is scary, too, though, like when real world violence happens as a result of some of the stuff that happens on online and media. So I think that big tech is really good for connecting people and getting to know people that you wouldn't normally know. But then you also have all these negative things like storming the Capitol, for example, getting all these people together to create violence. And that's where I think they need to figure out some way of making. I don't know how you do that, though. Like, how do you like not censor them? Also protect people. It's kind of hard. I think you have to have some kind of you have to remove the uh, the anonymous part of a lot of social media accounts where somebody can get banned on Twitter and then they can just make up a new email and get right back on the platform and do the same things that they were doing. So Mm. I think for some of these platforms, you almost have to treat it as 
a social security number where you get one account. And if you violate the law, if you threaten somebody online, uh, an established legal process, if you break the law online, you're not allowed back on or on that particular platform. And I know there's a lot of nuance to that. And I'm sort of just spitballing here, but that's sort of the initial thinking that I would put behind it is that it's almost like your your passport, where if you do something wrong, if you break the law, you can't travel outside of the country. So I think that you have to, with some of these bigger platforms, you have to establish those ground rules. And I think that if you put rules in place, I think I heard a, a great saying one time that you have to be, in order to put a law in place, you have to be okay with your worst enemy being able to have access and be able to follow that law. And so what we're seeing now is a lot of, especially people in the political sphere, they will say that this shouldn't be allowed if it's a certain political party that is allowing it. But then when it happens within their own political party, they say nothing. And so it, it going back to if you're going to establish certain laws and establish certain rules, it has to apply to everybody, no matter if you agree with them from a political spectrum or not. It, 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 that's the only way to really have a fair society, but then also still encourage open discourse and, and encourage that conversation because that's the the one of the more bigger issues is that everybody is in a silo and they're not challenged on their opinions and and they're not also allowing their opinions to change. And just sort of from like the root of like our human biology, it's very difficult to have your mind changed, but you remove that obstacle completely when you live in a silo and no one ever challenges your opinion. And so it, it's, it's a big complex issue, but it's also an issue that I think that the, t- the these tech companies brought on themselves. And mm-hmm. I think Jack has been Jack, the, the founder of Twitter. Yeah. He's been, you know, sort of one of the more vocal ones. And he says, I don't know how to fix this. And I appreciate that kind of honesty, yeah. um, but it's still a problem. I mean, you can, it, you still have to find some way to fix it. And the only way that I can really think of how it can be fixed is attributing some kind of online ID that is tied to different social media accounts, especially some of these bigger ones where maybe if you reach a certain amount of threshold, as far as a user base, you fall under certain higher restriction rules or higher regulations versus some of these other smaller platforms, which I think is more the future of social media, where I think that you have these small like niche communities, which still breeds kind of that, you know, that living in a silo problem, but it also gives people a like say uh, stepdads, for example, uh, you know, managing the relationships with your children, mm-hmm. having a group dedicated just for that, that you can network with each other and you can bounce ideas off of each other and and vent to each other. Creating those smaller communities, I think, is more of the future of social media versus like a few platforms that did just get to be the the, the judge, jury and executioner. Yeah, I like that actually, because I, I feel like that's what I really ever go online for is that sense of community and mm-hmm. just to learn, really. That's all I, I'm really ever after. So if 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 I could have found someone, you know, being like a better, being a step parent is hard. Like I will tell you, like I, I there's no rule book for like becoming a step parent. There's so much expectations mm-hmm. and it, it's it's not easy. So I completely agree that like I would definitely use social media for that type of thing. I do have one more question for you and then I'll let you get going because I know that you're Took up an yeah, hour. I'm sorry that, that notification <laughs> went off. No, no, <laughs> I, um, but no, I, I appreciate you taking the time. But I, my last question for you is like, what's your thoughts like on companies like 3PL Systems? Right, we're we're like a software company, but we don't really ever talk about ourselves. So I'm just curious: mm-hmm. is there still value of creating content that's surrounded in the freight industry, even though like you're not really saying much about yourself at times? So I'm just curious. 
Definitely. I, I think that that's sort of a model that a lot of companies can follow. And it's the better path to follow versus only talking about yourself. Because mm-hmm. I think that that's where a lot of podcasts fail and a lot of different content fails is because you're only talking about yourself. But I do think that there is a good opportunity to blend those two together. And they say it's more like the 80-20 rule or it's like the, what is it? The uh, Gary Vaynerchuk, um, he does the the jab, jab, right hook. So it's the, <laughs> totally. the give, give, and then ask. So I think that there's a balance that you can do with your content. And, and so incorporating that a little bit, especially from a storytelling aspect. I, I was just talking to a company the other day that is a, uh, they're technically a 3PL, but they're transitioning more into an agent model where they handle a lot of the tech. They handle a lot of the back offices for their different agent remote offices all over the country. And that's proving to be more valuable to them than actually running their own like brokerage operation internally. And so what they're going to be doing is creating those different stories without the selling angle behind it of why you should become an Armstrong agent, but they're letting their agents tell the story for them. So I think that there's different strategies that you could, you could use in that respect where maybe 3PL systems, that is something that you, you get an interview with one of your customers, but you don't do it with the idea that this is going to be a case study, or this is going to be a testimonial. You really legitimately want to hear and share their story. And if they talk great about your company, even better, because then that can be used in sort of like a case study environment. But I think getting the story first and then incorporating how your company helps, I think is like the ultimate like bread and butter for a lot of different creators out there. And a lot of companies, if you're looking to create that content is to focus on the stories first, focus on your subject matter experts first. And then from there, you can expand into more of like maybe the Q&A style or the, you know, a live webinar. I know we just sort of bashed going live, (laughs) (laughs) but there are still use cases, I think, for for that to exist in a a better environment where people are more receptive when they know that they're going to be joining a live or they're going to be joining a webinar and it's not going to be a, a PowerPoint sales call that they have to somehow like do the Irish goodbye to get out. <laughs> well, it's funny because like it's I feel like such a, like the sales process now or people the way they look at like sales and just decks in general like sales decks they're always just talking about themselves like when we were founded like they're just gloating about themselves for like thirty minutes and no one really gives a shit no, so I think that that's <laughs> part of the problem and I agree with you I, I have that same ethos of like hey like provide value provide value provide value and then when we do talk about ourselves maybe someone will listen because we've provided so much value. And I think that that's the, the same thing I'm hearing from you, which which I'm glad that I confirmed that with you because that's cool to know. Definitely. I mean, you guys are doing a great job. You're yeah. you're interviewing and you're having people on that are subject matter experts in, in their related field. And so that makes people more likely to tune into the next episode and the next episode and the one after that, because they know that they're not going to be joining a glorified sales call. Um, right. So I think that removing that barrier, because we're also living in a time that a potential buyer has all of the research at their fingertips that they could ever imagine. And so that it's sort of flipped from doing these cold calls where no one knows anything about you or sending out a PowerPoint presentation where nobody knows anything about you. This way they can get to know you organically and then you're you're remaining on top of mind because you're creating regular content. And then when that need becomes apparent, then they're going to your website and converting immediately instead of you know, they, this outdated sales model where you're you're making these cold calls and just hoping that somebody says, well, maybe or yes, which <laughs> 
kind of rarely happens. I think cold calling is on the way out. So yeah, cold um, calling's awful. (laughs) And um, I know a lot of my broker (laughs) friends will 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 crucify me for saying that, but I do believe that cold calling is on is on the way out because so many buyers have so much access to information now. They can just Google you instead of jumping on a sales call and feeling like they're going to waste their time. Um, But then if you're creating that valuable content that relates to the problems that they're experiencing, then they're more likely to get warmed up to you in an in an organic way. Makes sense. Well, Blythe, that was super fun. I appreciate you bearing with me and talking to me again. And I'm sure we'll talk again in the future because it's fun and you're very smart and you have a lot of great insights on stuff going on within our industry and just social media and everything. Um, How do people find you if they want to reach out to Digital Dispatch or the new show with uh, FreightWaves? Sure. So uh, Freight Waves, the Cyberly show will start Thursdays at 2 p.m. on March 25th. And then uh, if you want to hear more of me babbling and talking about different you know, social media platforms, <laughs> you can find the Digital Dispatch podcast. It's available on all different players. Um, and then for any of my social media accounts, just go to digitaldispatch.io. There's links to the podcast, YouTube, and all the different social channels there. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Digital Dispatch Podcast. As always, you can find each show I publish along with more insight over on my website at digitaldispatch.io. If you like this podcast, and I think you'll love another show I host, Cyberly, which covers the attention economy, B2B marketing, and how it all ties into the world of logistics. That show airs every Thursday from 2 to 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, right here live on Freight Waves TV. There are also some links to my social media accounts along with my products and services that might be of interest to you found in the show notes or again over on my digitaldispatch.io website. If you found this episode interesting and or entertaining, be sure to share it with a friend. Word of mouth is the best kind of marketing and since podcast discoverability has and remains an issue in this medium, I trust that folks like yourself will share it with those who would also find it useful. Until next time, my name is Blythe Brumleven. I will see you real soon.